And some people cannot emotionally, mentally handle the roller coaster that is entrepreneurship. There are some people that are getting ill and they're just counting the seconds until they can get off of this ride. And then meanwhile, the guy sitting right next to him is just screaming and having the time of his life. It's the same roller coaster, right? So why do some people love it and some people hate it? This can't be it. There has to be more. Wait, am I crazy? No. If you're yearning for more and working hard to make your dreams a reality, then you're in the right place. Welcome to Dreamcatchers. It's the only show committed to helping you self-actualize and then transcend, leaving you with the legacy you've always desired. Listen in on conversations with successful philanthropists, entrepreneurs, and founders every week as we connect with them for inspiration, education, and direction. Your host, Jerome Myers, is here to help you exit the matrix and transform into a leader of your own revolution. The question is, do you believe your dreams should be real? Hey, everybody, and welcome to the Dreamcatchers podcast. I'm your host, Jerome, and I'm going to tell you, you're in for a treat today. I got Andrew McIntosh in with me today, and he's had an exit, ladies and gentlemen, and I know that you're excited. We're going to start clapping for this young man because he did it pretty early, he did it pretty quickly, and we want to unpack this thing. Andrew, how are you, man? I'm good, man. How are you doing, Jerome? Amazing. What part of the world are you in? I usually introduce people because we want folks to know that it can happen wherever you live. Where I am in the world. Uh, Louisville, Kentucky, just outside of Louisville, Kentucky. Louisville, Kentucky. I remember us talking about going to the Kentucky Derby a few weeks back. And you're like, I've been here a while and I haven't been. So, <laughs> yeah, it's one of those things, man. You just you take it for granted when it's in your backyard, I guess. So riddle me this, man. Did you just come out your mom's womb and start building businesses or did you go into corporate before you built this monstrosity that you sold? What's funny is I think I was starting to build the building blocks for running a business before I even knew what that was, right? So I think I've maybe been an entrepreneur my whole life and didn't know it. <laughs> I grew up in the Midwest, actually central Illinois. So it's where I was is very blue collar, Midwestern mindset. It's all about just hard work, right? Like your work ethic. There's a lot of value placed on your work ethic there. And so we were encouraged as kids uh, to go knocking on doors and asking our neighbors, can I cut your grass? Can I rake your leaves? Can I shovel your snow? What can I do? Right. And looking back on that is such a good experience because you're learning all of these entrepreneurial skills long before you knew what the word entrepreneur even meant. So just getting comfortable with cold calling, knocking on doors, right? understanding the value behind what you're offering and then how to set your pricing accordingly, learning about customer service. I remember I was like a 10 year old kid and I cut this guy's bushes and I did a terrible hack job of it. And he just ripped me up and down for it. It was like, huh, okay, I'm learning lessons here today. <laughs> and then follow through and consistency and not showing up late and just all of these little things that you're just doing this stuff as a neighborhood kid, but you're actually learning all these valuable, useful skills that will pay dividends the rest of your life, essentially. So, yeah, I guess maybe I was kind of raised in that environment, but we just didn't call it entrepreneurship. I just didn't know what that meant at the time. Yeah, I think those are some really good skills and I think some skills that are undervalued. I still remember commandeering my dad's lawnmower. 
pushing it down the street and cutting up people's yards. And I don't even think I ever had to pay for gas to put in that thing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's all profit, baby. <laughs> a couple of weeks ago, there were some girls that live across the street from me that came and knocked on my neighbor's house and he had them pulled up on, on his camera and they were asking the same thing. Hey, can we do some landscaping of some kind for you? And man, that just like brought this rush of memories for me. And I was like so proud of those girls. It's 2023 and they're still out there doing it and trying to to do this. And it's like, okay, I want to support these girls and, and help them as best I can. So we're, we're putting them to work. <laughs> so did you ever go into corporate or did you go into your first business right off the bat? Oddly enough, I wouldn't call it corporate. I always worked for small businesses. So I've never actually worked for any kind of what I would call a real corporation. It's always been these locally owned where you have a direct relationship with the owner. I got my first real job was at a computer store when I was 14 years old. It was my my eighth grade, I think, science teacher. Her husband owned this computer store and I was a big computer nerd, just ate up with that stuff. And they got me a job cutting down boxes and stuff in the back. And so I've done different things like that, but usually all in the technology space, whether it was a computer store, I actually worked for a company that developed video games for a while. I was a video game tester. I've worked for a web hosting company. I kind of got exposure to all these different facets of technology, but it was always small businesses uh, for me. And then eventually after college is when I came to Kentucky, worked for someone who did exactly the type of work that I wound up starting my own business on. So I kind of learned the ropes of that business model before I got went out on my own. So what was your exit plan, right? You were employed for a number of years, teenage years, go through college, move to Kentucky, get the job, learn the business, learn the ropes. But how'd you transition? Like, what was the exit plan to becoming chief everything officer, a company of one? So there were a number of things. I, I think back to that idea of not even knowing what entrepreneurship was, but then just getting accustomed to the fact that like, I can just go work for myself and make a lot more money by the hour doing it for myself than when anytime I work for somebody else. Right. And so I got so used to being able to charge people to fix their computers and things like that. It was really in demand service, especially like in the nineties, nobody knew how to do this stuff. And so I think that was just kind of something I got addicted to early in life. <laughs> so that when I did eventually move to Kentucky, I'm working for this company another small mom and pop business, but they're doing the exact thing that I decided, okay, I'm going to do this for other businesses on my own. That just kind of paired with the timing, the environment that I was working in. I didn't get along great with the guy that I was working for. So it all just conspired at once to say, you know what, I'm going to go do this on my own. Wow. Was it kind of a culture thing or what was creating the rub between you and the, the owner of the company? I think it was a personality thing. He was a yeller. <laughs> he liked yelling at his employees and everybody that worked there was kind of miserable. That's the short version of it. So I was there for about a year and a half, learned enough of the ropes of the business, how this is priced, who you serve, what the business model looks like. And then what I started doing was some moonlighting on the side uh, for small residential customers and things that they weren't interested in. So it was all on the up and up as far as that's concerned. But then if you do good work and you charge a fair rate, your name starts to spread, you start getting more referrals. 
And all of a sudden I'm building up this healthy little side hustle while earning at my day job. And then my wife was also working at the time. And so then what we wound up doing was cutting our expenses down to the absolute minimum so that I could then take the leap without it being too risky. So the thing that was most heartbreaking for me was I went from driving a BMW that was sweet to a 1996 Buick Regal, white with a red interior that was just like, man, I have really swung the other direction here. <laughs> but it was I'm worth sure it. you got the car back. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, it was worth it. I don't think most people are willing to make that sacrifice that you just pointed out. I'm so grateful that you added that little tidbit into the story, right? People like to keep up appearances. They believe that it's more important to look like you're doing well than to actually be doing well. And your ability to transition, and I assume, I know some people will say, oh yeah, you can make more on your side hustle than your day job. I assume that you were not making more on the side than you were in the day. And so that step back in income is for a lot of people a necessary step if they're going to actually go out and do the thing that they've been placed on this planet to do. So am I characterizing that accurately or there's some things yeah. we need to adjust? No, you're spot on with it. Like I knew that the day I quit my job, the side hustle wasn't making more than, I don't know, maybe $1,500 a month on average or something, not enough to live off of. And then my wife was really just kind of working part time. And so all in, it was like, okay, we have to cut our expenses back here to make this work. And now by being able to then suddenly free up 40 hours a week that I can now focus on this side hustle. All right, cool. It starts picking up pace a lot quicker than it would have otherwise. Cutting those expenses was a big deal. I remember I had sold that car and was driving the old beater while I was still working the day job. And I literally got made fun of by customers, by coworkers for what is this piece of junk that you're driving? And it's just like, well, I've got reasons. It wasn't just, just because. And then the other thing that I did too was after I quit my job and I was still getting this thing up off the ground, my wife and I, we would clean offices on nights and weekends too. Like we got these opportunities. So I remember one day it was like a Friday night and instead of being out to eat with our friends and just kind of out there partying, we were cleaning this office and uh, I have, had picked up a dead mouse to, to go throw it away and I'm sitting there going, Am I making the right choice in life right now? But obviously I feel vindicated about all of it, but it was not glorious by any stretch in the early days. Well, and it's really poignant that you bring this up because social media just glorifies and romanticizes what entrepreneurship is. And it's really not that for most people in the beginning. I remember my first year, I didn't make a penny, right? Mm -hmm. It was all outflow. And so what I think is important for people is one, they do what you did, which is test the concept before you actually walk out the door, get some customers. So you're not starting at ground zero. Being at zero is the hardest zero to one is the hardest uh, step in the process Two, like when you reduce your expenses, one, you find out what you actually need and want need. And the, you can also see the things that actually bring you joy. Like we often have a bunch of things to justify us doing the work that we're not really happy or excited about. And when you cut back and really get into the thing from a work perspective that you enjoy, when you have that inspired work, some of that other stuff just falls by the wayside. And 
I know that was something that you realized. And so you talked about giving up the car. Were there some other expenses that you cut back on that you didn't really realize were big weights on you, but weren't adding a whole lot of value to your life? Yeah, there were things that just, I don't know, that all these little things that people think are no big deal, but they all add up and they compound, right? So I kind of maybe even went a little too far with it. My wife will probably tell you I'm imbalanced with this stuff, but I'm a big believer in that philosophy of once you're doing okay, but spend frivolously on things that you love, but cut mercilessly on things that you don't, right? During that phase, I was not spending frivolously, but I was cutting mercilessly on on everything. But the thing of it was, is it, it felt a little extreme, maybe in the moment we quit going out to eat. I wasn't buying Starbucks. We weren't going to the movies. We were, I was just working, right? And just trying to focus on this. But the irony is I didn't have to do that for very long. Like by the time I got to the end of my first full 12 months of entrepreneurship, I wound up making almost double what I was making on my salary. But it was because I was laser focused on just doing this thing. And so I probably overshot a little bit in terms of like balance. And I'm not necessarily advising someone to to do that. I'm a little older, a little wiser. I've got kids now. There's more to life than just making money. And so I, I might have gone a little overboard on it. But what I look back on, though, is I think I part of why I succeeded was because I gave myself as much buffer as possible, which then leads to some peace of mind that you're not just like have a gun to your head, which then causes you to make better decisions and give you more clarity in what you're doing, which leads to quicker and better outcomes, essentially. So yes, I buckled down and yes, I grinded and hustled, which I talk a lot about on LinkedIn is like not, I don't like to glorify that as if that is somehow the appealing aspect to this. But I do think that if you get laser focused for a little bit, it doesn't take long before you're in the black as far as your finances are concerned and you can start living a normal life again. So how'd you get your wife on board? Let's go there first. Oh, man, that's an interesting one because she wasn't on board. <laughs> they usually are. Yeah. She is definitely one of those who is the mentality of I just want to work a job. I just want to show up, do my thing. And then at the end of the week, I get my check. And our business here is done, right? And I'm just the opposite. I'm just like, man, I, I feel like I'm in prison here, just working for somebody else and just getting my check. And so we are on opposite ends of the spectrum as far as that's concerned. And to be honest with you, I don't know that I fully had her on board 100% by the time I did it. But I think we went round and round on this long enough that she realized, okay, Andrew's going to do this either way, right? And the fact that I was willing to cut back on things, willing to do additional work like cleaning jobs. It helped tremendously that we didn't actually have kids at the time. And so we had more flexibility in terms of cost of living and things like that. But there was a period there where in addition to overcoming all the challenges of starting a business, I also kind of had to prove to her that this is viable, right? And that this worked. Fast forward all these years later, she thinks entrepreneurship's fantastic right? It, so. <laughs> yeah. It's still not like for her, like she wouldn't want to go do it on her own, but I think she really admires now what entrepreneurship can enable you to do and the impact that it has on your life when done right. And so she's a believer in it now, even if she wouldn't do it necessarily herself. 
But I think when somebody can appreciate the vehicle or the mechanism or the medium and the merit that it has, and even if they know it's not for their personality profile, because it's not for everybody, right? And yeah. there's a high failure rate. And we were talking a little bit before about how few businesses actually make it to a million dollars a year in revenue and let alone profit, but <laughs> just revenue. Right. And so it's not for everybody. And most people will do better having a job than they will running their own business from a financial perspective. But for those folks like you and me who are willing to go out here and get some help, get some support and figure it out, uh, it, it can be a, a great way to build wealth for sure. I like to tell people that I meet that are also entrepreneurs, especially first generation entrepreneurs, which I will get into. It's kind of like my whole focus now, but I'm like, you're at least a little bit crazy. You have to be right. We're just wired differently. And I get it. I, I agree with you completely. Like it's not for everybody. Some people cannot emotionally, mentally handle the roller coaster that is entrepreneurship. And it's much like a real roller coaster. There are some people that are getting ill and they're just counting the seconds until they can get off of this ride. And then meanwhile, the guy sitting right next to him is just screaming and having the time of his life. It's the same roller coaster, right? So why do some people love it and some people hate it? So I think entrepreneurship is the same way. Oh, man. So you're doing everything, your company. And then I think you make your first hire. Who, what role were they in and did it work out? I laughed because this is like the first of many big, costly, expensive, terrible mistakes that I made on my journey. So I wound up hiring someone who was a good friend of mine and he had no prior experience in the IT world. And I had no prior experience in managing people or being a leader. So it's just the blind leading the blind. And there's all these things when it comes to managing expectations, training people setting up your, doing your taxes correctly and all the financial aspects of this to, to doing it right with payroll and bookkeeping and all this other kind of stuff. It was just kind of a disaster, right? And I don't blame him. I put the blame on me for that because I was just kind of ill-equipped for it. And the thing that really kind of stung, I think, more than anything was when I hired this person, I thought, oh, this is going to be such a relief. I'm about to bolt on 40 hours a week of capacity that's going to free me up and I won't be working so hard. It has the exact opposite effect, actually, because they need trained, right? They're not useful on day one, especially if they have no prior experience in this. So I'm all of a sudden making significantly less because I'm paying for this person's salary and everything. And I'm actually working harder and more than I was yesterday. And it was just like, what is happening? So I just, I went into it with totally the wrong expectations, ill-equipped, never done this before. And fortunately we are friends again, but it was a rocky, it was a rocky period of time. So did they work out? Cause you said you were training, like did, were you able to like get them up to speed and get a return on the investment that you made? Yes and no. So I actually wound up around the same time. I think he worked for me for about a year or so. And in a lot of ways, it was fun because we're friends and we're kind of goofing off and it was nice to not be doing this alone and that kind of stuff. But then around the same time, I wound up getting a surprise tax bill that I wasn't expecting. This is kind of like big mistake number two. <laughs> like I could go on 
we're not going to have enough time today for me to cover all the mistakes that I've made. I'm filled with them and wish I could do so many things differently. But what happened was I got introduced to this guy who was an accountant and we wound up bartering services. So he was doing my accounting and I was doing his IT and we're just bartering, right? But the problem with bartering in that kind of instance is, is what happens is I wind up doing as little as possible for him and he winds up doing as little as possible for me, right? Because you're kind of giving this away. And I've since learned there's a big difference between just simply someone who files your tax returns versus someone who is a tax strategist and is actually trying to help you with planning and avoiding getting taxed too much and all of this kind of stuff. So I get to around April and he calls me up and he goes, Andy, come on in. I got you to sign some paperwork and I get there and he goes, well, looks like you had a good year. You owe $14,000. And I had exactly $0 set aside for that. And so it was just like, wait, what? And that's when I kind of unraveled all of this stuff that like I'm supposed to be making. He assumed I knew all of this stuff. I'm supposed to be making these estimated quarterly payments and you're supposed to be setting aside your profits each month to do all this. And I knew none of that. Right. So I wound up having to take a few steps backwards in the business and go back to just being by myself without the helper and trying to dig myself up out of this hole. I had traded it in the Buick on a nice truck and I had to actually sell that a second time and go back to driving an old beater again because I had just paid all this stuff off and I didn't want to put $14,000 on credit cards, essentially, you know what I mean, to, to try to do this. So it very much felt like one step forward, two steps back at that point in time. Yeah, that far is no fun at all because you think you got to figure it out and you got all this extra money, you find out, oh, I didn't actually have all that extra money. There were other people with their hands out. And if you don't have a great tax strategy, right, if you don't have a way to write things off, then you can up in a space where you do have a big bill and that obligation goes in front of everything else. Everything yeah. Else. Yeah, absolutely. It was a very frustrating time because by that point, you've been working your butt off to get to that point and you start feeling like you're successful because you're seeing your revenue numbers and things like that. Meanwhile, you've got this big liability that's growing that you're just totally unaware of. And it's just was very deflating for me at the time because what felt like this is success and it's growing and it's working. It's like, no, you're still a rookie. You have no idea what you're doing and you're in for a, a rough ride ahead. <laughs> so who would you talk to in those situations when you got the surprise and you kind of got blindsided because I know for some people that can be so deflating that it knocks them or puts them out of commission. Yeah. So I had a heart to heart with this accountant who I really liked. We were kind of buddies. We got along great. He made me laugh. It was fun in that sense, but he had to finally explain to me a little bit, teach me a little bit more about this kind of stuff. And that's when I think I could see it on his face when he realized how little I know about all this kind of stuff. It wasn't long after that, that I, I found a new accountant, which is a big shock, right? And from the get-go, he's about my age. It's It was just always a different relationship than what I had with the first guy. And this guy really spent time with me to make sure that he knew how much I knew, right? So that he could kind of gauge how much coaching and, and education he needed to give me. Now he's billing me for it. He's 175 bucks an hour, but it was worth 
every penny because it really helped me get a better understanding of how taxes work, how to work on cash flow, and just kind of getting the mechanics of this stuff down. And it was not a quick process either. Like it took years to kind of get increasingly more sophisticated and into a routine and get over this hump of like, okay, here's how much you owe for taxes. Now come up with it. I eventually got to the point where it's like, yeah, cool. I've already got that and some set aside, ready to rock and roll. I'll just write the check and it's done. Right. So we got there to that point, but it just, a lot of trial and error and, and education and spending time with people who are genuinely interested in helping you avoid those kind of pitfalls. Okay. So it's helpful to make the investment, to say the least, counsel from experts on the most important things that you can't actually get around in a business, right? Yeah. I think of it like if you were building a house, do you want to lay the foundation yourself? Or do you want to hire someone who lays foundations for a living, right? And if you think you can save yourself a dollar or two by doing it yourself, but you do it wrong, the rest of that house that you build on is going to just be jacked <laughs> for as long as it stands. And so I've got this person that I know, she charges 500 bucks for an hour, but it's this specific process that she goes through with new entrepreneurs to help them get their LLC formed the right way to understand their, where they're headed with this and get a whole tax strategy built around it and really help them set a good foundation. Because if you do it wrong at that stage, it's just going to cost you way more than 500 bucks, right? Like it's just one of those things that it cost me $14,000 to have that mistake. And so that's money well spent to get rub shoulders with people who know what they're doing. They're subject matter experts, especially in the legal and finance in the early days. Those are your two, your two biggest things that you should invest wisely in. Yeah. Like, so I think I heard somebody call it penny wise and pound foolish. Yeah. And so you're, you're trying to save 500, $1,000 and you look up and it's a five figure bill because you, you made that decision. And I've always heard, well, actually it's my phrase. I say the, Cheapest way always ends up being the most expensive one. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I've another way I've heard it is don't step over dollars to pick up pennies. Right. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's absolutely true. And it is hard because in that, in those early days, you're broke. And so $500 for an hour with someone's time, that sounds really expensive. But I think if you just talk to enough people who are a step or two ahead of you, when every single one of them tells you, yes, that is worth doing, then you just need to take that leap of faith. You'll make it back. So you, you said you had to go back to working by yourself. And then I assume you hire at least one other person at some other point. And so kind of tell us of how the company grew and to the point where, well, let me ask you this before we go there. Did you ever get out of the day-to-day -day operations? Yes, but not for quite a while. Okay. Um, I was probably at 2006. So I think it was about after about 10 years, a decade it took me to, before I hired this one guy in particular who now managed all of my technicians. And as soon as we did that, then I became offense and he was defense and I could just get new sales and I could trust that I could throw those over the fence and that he would just take it from there. And that's when our growth really took off. But it took me a legit decade to get to that point. 
A lot of people want to unlock their ultimate potential but lack the strategy, support, and stamina necessary to achieve their major goals. They often try to overcome these challenges by trying to do it on their own, causing frustration, fatigue, and eventually failure. We have developed a model for a center life, aka the red pill, to help them bolster their beliefs, gain clarity on their path to success, and provide accountability as they take action on their goals. When they take the red pill, they rapidly accelerate attainment of their goals and begin to experience a life of significance and impact. Want to find out more? Hop over to JeromeMyers.co. Now, let's get back to the episode. And so let's sit there, right? I, I will call this manager of your technicians installing a COO. And that allowed you to go out and focus on sales. What was the most important step in hiring that person? Because, I mean, you just said it literally was a game changer. And I don't know if you maybe want to talk in percentages on how rev- how sales or revenue grew over th- the next couple of years as a result of that change. But I think this is one of the most important pieces of the business. When you can get out of delivery and have either be the salesperson or have somebody be your salesperson, uh, your company can change in a pretty short order. Yeah, I think that's a really good lesson. And just kind of general way of looking at it is a business can honestly be broken down into two things. And, and I guess this is, I'm speaking as a B2B service-based business. So this will be true for anyone who falls in that category, at least, is that there's sales and there's service delivery. And no one person can do good at both of those things at the same time. And, or maybe you're good at doing both, but there's an inherent cap on how far you can go. You've only got so much time in the day. Even you're the biggest rock star in the world. I'm sorry, one dog cannot chase two rabbits. It's just fact. So you need to identify as early as possible, which of those two is your thing, right? So for me, I realized that Part of my strength was on the sales side of things because there's the stereotype of your normal IT guy, computer guy with the glasses and can't look you in the eye and can't carry on a conversation. In the, and that's a stereotype. It's not always true. However, I did have a pretty good knack for just talking to people, right? And, and having a conversation and getting the business side of it and being able to speak business owner to business owner and talk to them about how we can leverage technology to have a good impact on your business, right? So I think I was pretty good at the sales part of it, but when it came to delivery of the service, when I started talking to this guy, I realized he's a better manager of people than I am, and he's a better technician than I am. Prior to that point, I was the the smartest, most experienced technician in the room with those five or six employees that I had, they all would kind of look to me when they ran out of ideas. Now, all of a sudden it's like, nope, this guy, I go to him for ideas, right? Like, and so in that zone, it was like, okay, he's legitimately better at this than I am. And now it lets me go focus 100% of my time on the thing that I'm naturally better at. And once we hit that dynamic, yeah, I don't remember because it's still been, this is probably like 2015 or so. But I think that we were probably in the $700,000 a year range in revenue, something like that. And I think I had like five employees or so. 
And then I brought him on and then it was just, it just like, you could just watch it just start ticking up. I mean, ultimately we wound up at $2 million a year in revenue and you can just pull up QuickBooks and look at your P&L and do it over a decade period. And you just look at this thing and it's all of a sudden is like a pretty beautiful little 45 degree angle from that point on. <laughs> up and to the right. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. And it sure up and to the right. Yeah, it it was it was beautiful. It was beautiful to look at. <laughs> so you said something pretty profound. You said he was better at it than me. And I think a lot of founders, a lot of entrepreneurs feel like nobody can do it as good as them. Nobody can do it as fast as them. And you were aware, I'll use the word aware because I think that's the best one, that somebody has some skills, some talent, some ability. And then you let them step into that and actually have a positive impact on the business. Is that right? Or Yeah. And, and here's the thing. I think most people can acknowledge that if you're providing a technical skill of some kind, it doesn't matter you know, what it is, but you're a technician who is self-employed. You're not, that's not the same as a business owner, right? So a technician for me that meant doing computer work for someone else it might mean i'm a i'm an hvac guy right and so if i'm out there doing hvac work i'm a technician who works for myself you're self employed whereas a business owner isn't doing that technical work they're managing people and processes and sales and leadership and all this high level stuff it's two totally different skill sets right and relatively few people make that leap from self-employed technician, even if you got one or two helpers, but you're still kind of like the end all be all on the technical side of it, you're really still self-employed at the end of the day. Whereas a business owner, it's a different skill set altogether. And for some people, that's not appealing to them. They just want to stay over here and just kind of keep doing this thing that I, I've done my whole life. Other people like me, I was relieved to get away from doing that kind of stuff. I'd been at that long enough. When I found somebody who was better at it than I was, it was like, sweet, now I can go focus on this. But the chicken and egg problem that I faced, and I assume a lot of other people faced, was up to that point, all the guys I hired were essentially new in the field because that's all I could afford. So I'm bringing these guys in who I'm taking a chance on them. They don't have prior experience, but they're inexpensive as far as an hourly rate is concerned. They're smart and they have a good work ethic. And it's like, okay, I can work with that. I can train that. And I'm getting to take advantage of their inexperience so that I can actually afford these people. But then the problem is if I want to hire somebody who's more experienced than I am or is better than I am, it's like, I mean, these are all six-figure guys. I can't afford that, right? So, so now what? Well, what I did, and I don't know if this is a recipe for success for everyone, but it worked for me, was I happened to talk to a lot of different people, interview different people who I all perceived as being this guy that, that could be my right-hand man. But it wasn't until I found this particular individual who had the circumstances that I could take a chance on him and equally he could take a chance on me. And what we agreed to was starting him at an hourly rate or a salary that I could afford at the time, which was underpaid for his level of experience. And he and I both knew that. But what we were both placing a bet on each other and we said, hey, if you can take this off my plate, then I can go sell. 
And every time I get a new customer, we're going to take a fixed percentage of that and add it to your compensation until you get where you want to be. I'm sure he was pretty excited about that. That worked out for him. It did. And not everybody is in a position to do that, right? Like I I went through several people who were like, hey, I like that idea, but I can't. I got kids. I got bills to pay. Like I can't take that risk. So it it took time to find the right who in that example. But man, was it worth it? It was worth the effort because it just totally opened up a bunch of new opportunities for both of us. Now, did you ever establish a board? No, I never did. Which now that I've sold the business and started rubbing shoulders with more people who do that, I, I definitely could see the value in having a board. But I've never actually, I've never served on one and I've never had one of my own. Got it. And so let's move up to exit six, which is the exit, the sale, getting the pot of gold. And so what was your first exposure to someone selling the business? So I had a few customers that I lost because they sold their business. And then the company that took over, typically they're bigger and they took over and they've already got their own IT department. And anytime someone announced the sale of their company, it's like, oh crap, I'm losing a customer. And nine times out of 10, that was the case. But it was never really on my radar much. I had people that would email me or call like cold call. And every once in a while, they would talk about, hey, do you ever want to sell your business? But it was like pretty obvious that it was a mass email or whatever. And so I never paid too much attention to that. But then one day I had this guy call me. He's local to me here in Louisville. We had kind of done some business together and he's in that whole mergers and acquisitions space. And he asked me like, hey, have you ever thought about selling your business? And I'm like, no, not really, because I'm not ready to retire. And he's like, well, how old are you? And I said, "I'm at the time, I think I was 37. And he's like, you have kids? I'm like, yeah, they're seven and four or whatever. He's like, well, you're not ready to retire anyway. So why are you making retirement the qualifier for why you would sell this thing? It's like, I don't know. I just did. I never really thought about it. So he asked me what I thought my business was worth. I gave him an educated guess and he said, okay, now imagine if you sold that today and then you invested that money and you let it sit in the market for 20 years until you are actually retirement age, in which time it will triple. How does that look for retirement? And it was like, that looks pretty good at that point. And he said, the IT industry that I was in at that time was hot. Like there was a lot of consolidation happening. Interest rates were low, multiples were high. He said it, it's a good time to think about it, but it won't always be that things like this kind of go in phases. He was like a f- couple of years ago, it was veterinarian offices. They were getting snapped up left and right, but now that's kind of cooled off. And now IT is hot. He's like, my advice is the next time someone comes knocking, just hear them out, right? Don't just close the door on it. So I took his advice, but later that year, so this would have been in fall of 2020, in a span of two months, I had eight different companies reach out to me and not just blast emails, but like they knew who I was and they knew who my company was and they had a strategy in mind by the time they approached me about it. And so I took his advice and I started just like, okay, what what do you have to say? And I went from it not being on my radar around... May of 2020 to signing the on the dotted line July of 2021. So it was a, yeah, it was a big surprise. But so what's rare is the first LOI closing. And it sounds like that's what happened. The first offer you got 
where you signed the contract, you closed that deal with that buyer? Yes. Out of the eight people that contacted me, I was able to kind of say no to a couple of them early on because I didn't like, like for one, I wasn't really interested in selling to like a private equity group. As an example, I'd heard a lot of negative things around that and was really concerned about my clients and about my team, et cetera. There are a couple others that I was able to filter out. And what it boiled down to was really kind of two, one local, one regional company that wound up competing for this. And then of the two, one had a, a better offer and a better cultural fit. And so I signed their LOI and then we wound up closing the deal. So yeah, only one one LOI ever signed. Wow, that's good. And so did you actually have a broker involved in the process or is just buyer to seller off market? No broker. Yeah, no broker. However, one of the best moves that I made was I had joined a industry peer group, essentially, that did some benchmarking, like financial benchmarking and some other services around that. And I hired one of their guys. So it's not that he was a broker of the deal per se, but he was essentially a coach for me. He wasn't neutral. He was playing on my side of the fence and helping me with the negotiations using data from all these other sales to really kind of educate and inform me as, as far as what the, the market is actually getting for these kind of things. He charged me $15,000 to do it, which seemed, it was like, well, that's not nothing, but let me tell you, I've never had a better return on my money on a $15,000. Yes, <laughs> absolutely paid for himself many times over. So while there wasn't a broker, I feel like I actually kind of, it was maybe even better than a broker because a broker is supposed to be neutral. This guy, he was 100% in my corner and he wound up really paying for himself. All right. So did you get a check or did you get a wire? I got a check and I took a picture of that thing. 50 times over from every single angle that I could find. I was at the teller. I was at the house. I had the thing framed. I had all this kind of stuff. And it was just like, my heart was racing when I walked up to a bank teller. And I was like looking at her face as I handed her this check. <laughs> it was just like, there's so much better than a wire. If you have the choice, take the check every time. I promise every you. Time. Yes. Yes. That was a pivotal, pivotal day in my life. Was it the largest amount of money you had in your possession at one time? Oh, by far. Yeah. Yeah. By far. How'd you, how'd you celebrate? Yeah. I don't know. It, it, it kind of lasted for a few weeks. There was a few weeks of just like, I'm just on a high. I'm not a real super flashy, spendy kind of guy, but just a lot of really good quality, reflective conversations with my wife when just looking back on all this. There's a lot of emotion though, too. Like I, everybody, it's like a known thing that an entrepreneur puts their blood, sweat and tears into this thing, but it's like, that's an understatement. You don't realize how much emotion and how much investment you've really got into this thing. And it's your baby. And it was just like, this is a major shift in life. It was a big deal. And so it lasted, you said for weeks or did you say months? A few weeks, I would say. Yeah. Yeah. All right. And then what happened? So I actually wound up working for the company that acquired mine and I was on an earnout for two years. So my total package, that check represented about two thirds of my total package. 
And then the remaining third was variable comp based on how many clients stayed and how well we did. So, which was smart on their part, because I think if they gave me everything and then I just bounced, I think a lot of clients would have left quickly. But by virtue of me sticking around, it went for everybody. So that's part of why it only lasted a few weeks, because it was like, well, guess what? I'm now an employee <laughs> and I got to show up and like really kind of facilitate this transition and, and help with it. But I wound up working for them uh, for just around a year, a little over a year at that point. And did you have questions? Were you wondering if you made the right choice in selling it? Were you, like, what, what happened? Come on. So I went into it with rose-colored glasses, and I thought I had made the best decision of my life. And then what happened was that confidence and that enthusiasm just kind of started getting chipped away at little by little every day. About six months into it, maybe less, I was like, maybe I shouldn't have done this. I don't know. <laughs> but then it kind of hit this low spot and I realized like, I'm not sticking around here. That's pretty obvious. What am I going to do next? And started really kind of looking at all my options on that front. And then what I landed on is helping other first-generation entrepreneurs like myself to try to go from survival mode to thrival mode. I know that's not a word, but what's happened though is while that is still in its infancy, it for me personally is so much more fulfilling than fixing people's printers. I know that's shocking to hear, like that's the dream. Everybody wants to fix printers and stuff, but Helping people grow their businesses, though, is so rewarding. So I've got this mixed mixed bag of emotions of like, that thing was my baby. I was so proud of it. But then I was also tired of doing IT. There was a huge financial impact from selling it. But then I'm frustrated working for someone else and not controlling it, steering the boat, to then pivoting into something new that's bringing me tremendous fulfillment and I think has the potential to be 10x of what it was that I built last time. So it's not been just this, hey, everything's rainbows and unicorns and it's all great. It, it hasn't. And the answer to the question, would you do it over again, went from a yes, 100% to then 80 to then 60 to then 50. And I think I'm at about, I'm back up to 70 now. <laughs> so it's been an emotional roller coaster for sure. Yeah. So what you're describing is an exit paradox. And it's when you have all of these emotions, when but they're brought on by significant achievement. And in your case, it was selling the business that you built over 10 or 15 or 20 years. And then going from being the guy to being a guy in a larger company and starting to ask the questions like, what was it all for? Is this really it? And then the yeah. what now question. And we found a lot of people are chasing financial freedom, but it's the wrong F, but it's not their fault, right? The American dream is all about creating financial freedom. And we're programmed for decades to chase it before we even get into the workforce. It isn't until we realize it probably isn't what we should be chasing that we actually get focused on that other F that you were talking about, which is fulfillment. And so people often, and you're navigating it, it seems pretty well, are struggling with the six centers of doubt. And so they're questioning their self-image, the relationships that they have around them, 
the work that they're doing, their health and the impact that their business building had on it. And then the prosperity, because you said you're not a spendy guy. And so what I find is common is I can afford it, but should I actually spend the money that way? It's like, all right, I got it now. We struggled, we scraped. I had to give up my BMW for a Buick. Like, I don't ever want to go back to that place again. So where are we? Or I had to give up my truck to pay the payroll taxes. What? How do I make sure that never happens again? But there comes a place where you actually have to enjoy the fruits of your labor. And then the last thing, which is back to this fulfillment, which is what we call significance. And people start asking questions like, if I die today, who would carry my casket? And what would people actually remember me for? And Fixing printers is one thing, helping people fix their businesses and actually enjoy some freedom is something different. So what you described is not something that surprises me at all, Andrew, because when our private clients show up, that is what they're trying to figure out. They're trying to figure out what's next. And I know first-gen entrepreneurs is a newer venture for you, but you seem to be having a lot of success. And so for the folks that are out there, who are interested in getting help and making that leap. And I assume they're in between exit one and two or where they're either leaving corporate or being an employee or their chief everything officer and they're trying to figure out how to scale. Let's talk a little bit about what you're doing to help those folks, because I think it's a worthy pursuit for sure. Yeah. So when I, and that's, by the way, before I answer all of that, like that's really comforting to hear what you just said that like, I'm just going through a normal process, right? It is. Now, the coincidence here is that's exactly what I'm trying to help first-gen entrepreneurs realize, is that all these ups and downs that they're going through are also normal, right? Like I've been there, all your peers have been there. And so it's just interesting how valuable that is to hear from other people, that that really never ends, I don't think. But after I sold the business, I started thinking about what I was going to do next. I had a number of people kind of suggest becoming a business coach, which is a viable option. But I was trying to think of something, what can I do that would actually help more than the eight or 10 people that I can help one-on-one and kind of came up with this community model instead. Because in my experience, I hired a business coach and it was a phenomenal experience. I would absolutely recommend it. But I couldn't afford that guy until I had already been in business for about six years. Well, the first five years is when you're statistically likely to fail. 100%. It was (laughs) when you need the most support. That's when you need it most. Yeah. And so I was like, as awesome as this guy was, I couldn't help but think, man, what if I had access to you the first five years? Like it could have put me on a totally different trajectory. But the problem is most people can't afford that. He was $1,500 a month. That was a decade ago. And that was his discounted rate. (laughs) So, yeah. So what I decided was I kept telling people my story over and over again that I was, and I thought it was an important detail that I was the first in my family to start a business. And so I didn't grow up sitting around the dinner table talking about how a business is ran and how to lead people and how to build processes and how to make these projections and how to, all this stuff is all stuff I figured out the hard way, like school of hard knocks, 100%, right? And I happened to be one of the ones who survived, who defied the odds. But in my opinion, that 50% odds of failure in the five years, that's just way too high. And there are probably a good chunk of those who could have made it 
if they just had access to the right people and the right resources and avoid some of those extremely costly or sometimes deadly mistakes. So one day I post on LinkedIn, I coined this term first gen entrepreneur. And I had like three people DM me that day and say, hey, I've never heard it put that way, but I'm a first gen entrepreneur. And in that moment, it was like, okay, so we get each other. I know exactly what you're going through. And so do you, right? And so it kind of created this like identity piece that resonates with people. And I'm pairing that with building this community designed to be a very accessible, affordable way to build a bridge. Let's just get you to that point where you can afford a good business coach, because I think there's such a great investment in your time. And so it's like, if I can help even just a, a relatively small number of people not become that statistic that fail in the first five years by rubbing shoulders with people from all these different industries who each have their own area of expertise that we can crowdsource the knowledge and the expertise that you need to thrive. And then let's just keep growing this together. Let's get you connected with coaches. Let's do masterminds. Let's do networking and connections and just kind of build this whole ecosystem that helps people get on the right side of the, what I call entrepreneurial hump. <laughs> because if you're on the wrong side of that hump, you're working your butt off, you're not making any money and it's miserable. You get on the right side of that hump and it's like you're having the time of your life. It's still a lot of work, but you're making decent money. You've got autonomy, you've got freedom, you've got the lifestyle that you want and it can have a lasting impact on your family and it's worth it. It's like, I just want to help people get on the right side of that hump. That's all I'm trying to do. Andrew, this has been a phenomenal episode. Any closing words for the listeners? You mentioned at the outset, or I think before we recorded, like what's some of your biggest regrets or mistakes. And I think it can really just be boiled down to one thing. And that is trying to figure everything out on my own. Yeah. That's my biggest mistake. If someone can, if you can just start thinking who, not how, like that Dan Sullivan book that just came out, it's, it's a game changer, man. And if you're not getting good answers from someone, then pick up the phone and call someone else and then pick up the phone and call someone else until you get the right person who, who can help you in that moment with the exact knowledge that you need. That is the quickest and least painful shortcut to success is right there in your network. You just got to don't do it alone. That's my biggest piece of advice. Yeah, man. I call it the most inefficient and ineffective way to learn the lesson. The school of hard knocks is not the school that I want to be enrolled in anymore. Yeah. If you're an entrepreneur and you're brave enough and crazy enough to go out on your own and do this, chances are you're a pretty smart person, right? And like, you're good at what you do. Don't let that get in your own way, right? Like there are people out there who are smarter and more experienced than you in their area. Just seek them out and learn from them. Don't try to do it on your own. And don't cheap out. <laughs> and don't <laughs> cheap that's out. Where we go for all. Man. Yeah. All right. To the listeners, if you want the sort of help with your eight figure exit in a way that Andrew would have loved because he did it and he could think of some other ways where he could have had some help along the way, then jump over to theexitparadox.com to get our white paper on the five mistakes every founder should avoid when exiting. Until the next time, your dreams should be real. We'll talk soon. Thank you for joining the tribe today. We would love to hear from you. Please don't forget to rate, like, and share. Perhaps someone you know could benefit from what we've discussed. 
Until the next time, remember that your dreams should be real. <laughs>